welcome to a super special, secret, disruptive edition of View from the Hilltop, the Georgetown Public Policy Review podcast. My name is Justin Goss. I am the editor-in-chief of the Georgetown Public Policy Review, joined, as always, by my silent partner, senior interview editor, Kevin Barslow. Hello, Kevin. Today is an all super special spring edition disruption theme of the pod. So I am joined by senior spring media editor, Austin Sabo. Hello, Austin. It's good to be here. Nice to see you, Justin. <laughs> Great to see you as well, Austin. <laughs> joined by senior spring editor, Kathy Robleska. Hello, Kathy. Hi, Justin. Happy to be here. Oh, so happy to have you. And finally, spring editor, Slightly less important title, no less important to the spring edition, Jessica Lee. Hello, Jessica. Hi. Thank you, Justin. <laughs> so glad to have you all here. So today what we're going to do is we've been talking about around the idea or making tongue-in-cheek allusions to disruption in some way, shape, or form throughout the year. Today we're going to dig in, dig deep within ourselves and within the spring edition search out exactly what disruption is. We're gonna go through and introduce you to a few elements of the Spring Edition, especially because you might be listening to this as part of the Spring Edition that you're about to read. And then we'll go through and talk about our favorite, most fixating thing of disruption news from the last nine months since we started working on this edition in a segment we like to call disruptive behavior. But first, Austin. Can you can you introduce to the listeners what you what they need to know about the theme of disruption? What is disruption? What are we talking about? Disruption is a lot of things, Justin. Uh, when we came up with the theme uh, two weeks before Brexit, it was all about how technology was impacting policymaking, uh, the way that Uber was in, in, impacting labor policy, the way Airbnb was impacting housing policy, etc. Disruption is still about that, but a couple of things have happened since then. That oh? Have, uh, just a couple little things, you know, Trump, Brexit, the entire world, the political world order falling apart, that have sort of uh, had us rethink what disruption really meant. So for me, disruption is three things. One, it's what I already said, it's technological progress impacting policy making and the lives of everyday people. Number two, it's how the current political climate is sort of destroying our very concept of objective truth. And three, it's the fact that people don't trust experts anymore. And we are experts, and we have to figure out how to reverse that, or else policymaking won't really mean that much anymore. Interesting. So in terms of how... So you, you've, you've written at length on a, on a few of these topics through, throughout the year. Um, so what, what's, some of the, what's some of the ways that, we've been, that you've been discussing uh, these three broader themes throughout, throughout our, our uh, calendar year? Well, the, the main way we've been discussing disruption it has been through uh, GBPR's all-new uh, column, Disrupting Your Month. Check it uh, out. Written by yours truly. Uh, in this column, I, I've essentially been summarizing the news and uh, commentating on it, uh, discussing how each of these things uh, disrupts uh, our lives. Uh, so, you know, I've discussed things from, you know, see things that are very silly and utopian, like uh, Elon Musk wanting to dig a ton tunnel under Los Angeles to... Someone should. So someone should. Who cares about earthquakes? Just <laughs> get in there, right? Um, to things like uh, the Muslim ban and how it's no longer about fake news, it's also about fake policy. Policies that try to solve problems that aren't really there. You can be moral about it, but you can also just look at the facts and say, what is this policy actually trying to solve? Is there evidence of this problem? And, and that's, and that's a, a theme of some of your writings that's actually been substantiated in the news cycle where we saw the stay on both the first and second executive order pertaining to uh, mu to Muslim countries failed the rational basis test, so a court, which is ju a judicial standard for federal lawmaking. So when or executive orders. So when you're talking about when when you're talking about um, policies that just don't make sense, you're 
it's not so much they don't address address a real concern, but they there's no there's no link between A and B in term in terms of how policy A actually addresses pro problem B. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Like uh, we have a problem of terrorism. Obviously, we just had an attack recently in London where one man uh, stabbed a few people. It, it's very unfortunate. That's a real problem, and it's a real concern that we have to address as policymakers. But what the court said is that the Muslim ban or the travel ban, whatever you'd like to call it, uh, doesn't do anything to actually solve that problem. There's no link between the problem and this proposed solution. So you 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 put it very well there. Yes. And then to your to your third point, I, I guess that I guess that we're gonna have to dig real deep throughout this podcast because you're telling us that. The public no longer trusts experts, and yet here we are, literally sitting in an ivory tower. And I do mean that literally, listeners. Um, about about to talk about substantive policy issues. So we've got we've got our work cut out for us, but but we'll see what we can do. Kathy. Yes. Hello. Hello. <laughs> so you have spent a significant amount of time, I think it's fair to say, um, bringing the actual text of the spring edition from cradle to I don't really I don't really what grave is not the right no it's no it, 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 it. In, in fact because it's online it lives forever potentially it's beautiful um so but to but to fruition um so can you can you tell the listeners maybe in brief first what are some of the the bigger ideas that they can hope to get out of our spring edition this year um and then and then we'll start digging in a little bit to the papers and talking about um, some of your your favorite or most unexpected findings from the spring edition. Sure. So this year for the spring edition, we have five papers um, that will be published next week on Thursday. We're very excited. Um, four of the papers are original. Actually, all of them are original research. Um, but for them, basically, they cover a variety of different topics um, from the most disruptive, but also not the most disruptive, but the most iconically disruptive technology of Uber and how it affects um, taxi cab drivers in New York. Um, and then we talk about things like internet access and the digital divide amongst rural and urban households, but also households on a lot of different um, demographics, such as income, education, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then we kind of move into the legal sphere by talking about small business, the rise of small business, and how Latino small businesses um, are particularly important in, I guess, increasing the amount of small businesses as Latinos are starting the most small businesses um, currently. And basically, the paper offers policy options for how to increase uh, the number of Latino small businesses. And then, our last two papers are more internationally focused, with one about trade in Asia um, and how Southeast Asia may or may not be able to form a similar type of Eastern Europe, not Eastern European, European Union, all European <laughs> Union, not just Eastern Europe. Warsaw Pact. <laughs> I know, all over again. And then we end up with a paper that I think was very close to Austin's heart um, <laughs> about just like information technology and how that has helped maybe or just like further the rise of right-wing populism both yeah. in the united states and in a way abroad as well hmm. so attacking disruption from a number of different angles yes. like you yes. said both from the most traditional domestic context of uber which mm -hmm. is maybe the the first and last technology that some some might think of when they think of the term disruption to more internationally focused, yeah. um, multi-state multi uh, issues of disruption, but generally just how these changes are changing the policy discussion and the policy context and how state and non-state actors are struggling to keep up with, the, with those changes. Interesting stuff. Um, and again, a more a, a forward-looking a forward crop of papers similar to last year's uh, spring edition of Post Millennial. Go read it, everybody. <laughs> still there. Still, uh, still. It on. will live on forever. It, yeah. Yes. GPPRSpring.com/slash/2016. <laughs> Plugging hard. Hi, Jessica. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> 
so enthused. <laughs> I am. So, so um, you you got to you got to get um, really up close and personal with a couple of the papers specifically. Yes. Um, so why don't you why don't you go ahead and tell the listeners uh, which two papers you were most concentrated on? Right. So I did a two papers. I did the one on the digital divide in the U.S. and then the one on trade in Southeast Asia. Um, so with the paper on the digital divide, when I first got that paper, um, I will admit I did grumble a little bit about it because I didn't think that it would provide anything interesting or new. I've <laughs> learned, um, and I was surprised because it did. Are you are are you historically a telecommunications <laughs> policy expert? No, but I, I thought I knew enough. I you know I re I read the news, so it's good. <laughs> um, I I thought that it would be just kind of repetitive of what I already knew, um, and uh, it was really different actually. Um, in in what in what way specifically? So I thought it was really interesting how it focused not just on whether people have internet access or don't have internet access, but also on the types of devices that they use. Um, so one stat that they provided uh, was that African-Americans have the highest mobile-only usage rate, um, and that was shocking to me to know that. Um, that's, that's true. So to clarify the point real quick, so Jessica's totally right um, for people who read, read a lot in this space. There ha there's been a lot of research from Pew, Gallup, uh, what, what have you, in terms of various divides where certain populations use the internet more than others. Um, but yeah, there's the, there's this uh, this phenomenon of single device ownership, where some folks don't uh, have laptops, desktops, anything, and they actually only access the computer or sorry the internet from a mobile phone, a, a smartphone. Um, right. And at first, I thought, what's the big deal with that? A lot of people, we actually in international development focus on that a lot of how people have smartphones now, and that's a positive thing. But then the paper dug a little bit deeper. Um, and was talking about how people do different activities on different devices. Um, so someone who only has a mobile phone might not have as much job flexibility mm -hmm. as someone who has access to a laptop. Um, so thinking about the digital divide in that way. What, what do you mean not as much job flexibility? Because if you don't have a laptop, you might not be able to work remotely, mm -hmm. right? So if you have six kids um, and you wanna be able to be at home with your children, and you only have a mobile phone, it would be a lot more difficult, and you have to go to the office to access information. Hmm. So, also, just like in terms of people only having access to one device, and in some cases it being a cell phone, I think it's interesting to think about the comments that Representative Chaffetz from Utah said a couple of weeks ago, how in terms of the new um, Republican health care bill, how people should not buy iPhones, but instead invest in their health care. Um, I think he apologized for it later, but um, you see how it could be a problem when there's just so many individuals who rely on their phones, their smartphones, maybe not an iPhone, but some sort of smartphone as their only way to get online, which is so important. Like there's so many things that we do these days that are online only. Such as listening to this podcast. But yeah, exactly. uh, what, one, sec, one sec, Austin. But yeah, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. I think the primary retort to that comment was by quantifying the differences in cost of healthcare versus the cost of a smartphone, well, yeah. <laughs> which are obviously not the same. But a, 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 side, a side conversation on that was just that it's a little bit of a, of a mischaracterization to say that smartphones at this point are a luxury. For mm -hmm. a lot of folks at this point, they are not, they are a necessity. Exactly. That's what I was actually going to say. It, it's amazing that there are still people out there who think that smartphones are some kind of luxury device that people shouldn't have. They're absolutely essential for people, especially when they don't have other devices. Mm -hmm. Anything? Anything? So, so definitely some more granular findings uh, with some interesting upshots out of out of that article. Any any other uh, findings from that piece that you want to talk about, or anything you found surprising? Um, I think that was probably what I found. The other thing, uh, I guess, is that. Um, the data also suggested that higher income households may be becoming less likely to use the internet at home. Hmm. And uh, it didn't really go into me the specifics of why, so I don't know what you guys think, but that was surprising to me. I thought maybe it had to do with mobile phone usage. Um, but I think or that was also working okay for all the time. 
Fair, fair, yeah. Maybe people don't do anything at home anymore. <laughs> right. I mean, people are at home. I don't. Maybe people are just working overseas more. I don't know. So that I think that was surprising to me. I didn't really expect that. I I will say I'm I'm also somewhat familiar with this paper. I will say that um, the paper attacks the there. There's this, been this persistent some odd 23% of Americans that just don't use the internet. And it's been an ongoing mystery as to who exactly these folks are and why they don't use the internet. Ron Swanson. There's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of them. Um, some of them exist in real life, but yet, but yes, the Parks, Parks and Rec character, Ron Swanson too. Um, but, um, but yeah, but this paper tries to get around from a number of different angles why these folks are resistant to getting online. And the answer may surprise you. But what was what uh, what other? Well, we're not we're not going to give away, we're not going to give away everything <laughs> in this podcast. Go with a punchline. Oh, yeah. Do it. This is this is just the teaser. This is this is the. Going to show up on stop clickbait. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least I'm getting the name out there. <laughs> so what uh, what about the second paper that you had, Jessica? Okay, so the other paper is talking about uh, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations which um, has been more so um, an economic kind of agreement rather than a political one. Um, And the paper was exploring the reasons for that and whether or not it could dig deeper and become more like the European Union. And its conclusion is no. Um, (laughs) That because the EU started out on a very different basis and for very different reasons um, compared to ASEAN. So there's always the lingering memory of war as well. Um, So because of that, there's a greater incentive for countries in the EU to participate and to cooperate. Um, While the countries in ASEAN don't really have that, I mean, there's the financial crisis, but again, that's not really a political thing when they look at it. Um, They think of it more as an economic uh, reason to have a cooperation. Um, And so it kind of explores that reason and also the different nature of economic structures in ASEAN countries. So Singapore has zero tariffs, but Mm -hmm. then other countries have more protectionist measures um, like the Philippines. And how do you reconcile those two things in a common market that probably will require at some point um, common tariffs? Um, And so for that reason, the author concludes that it's not really possible. But he's saying that ultimately in the end, what's important is the welfare of the citizens in a country. And so if ASEAN works in that way to improve overall well-being, then it's fine. Does it need to be like the EU? Um, so I guess I didn't, this was intriguing to me because I didn't realize that people were even comparing ASEAN and the EU. To me, hmm. they're very different entities. Um, but I guess there may be a push for it to be more like the EU. You, no, I, I had read this paper and I kept on thinking about this comparison to the EU. And you're yeah. right that it's not something I would have thought about because ASEAN is a very economically oriented um, organization. There could not have been a better time to publish this paper considering what is actually happening in the European Union, where it seems like depending on the results of a few elections and referendums, the whole thing might just fall apart. And this paper um, kind of puts into perspective this idea of you know, political integration um, or cooperation is not very possible. And is it even, you know, at least my, what I'm getting out of it, at least during this disruptive time is, is it even worth it considering how difficult it seems to be and how much backlash there is against it, even when it is successful? Well, so in general, like the rise of nationalism that we've seen in a lot of countries has put like a lot of different trade agreements like on the rewriting table. So anything from NAFTA to TPP to the European Union, like all these things, because people are starting to become not more insular. That's not really the word I'm looking for, but more nationalistic. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to use nationalistic again. <laughs> I wanted a synonym. More patriotic. Patriotic. That's <laughs> not the same thing, though. No, it's not. I was being, um, a, little, being a little coy. All those patriots will be so upset. Um, not the ones in New England. <laughs> they're never upset. <laughs> That's true. Um, I forgot what I was saying. <laughs> Sorry. Um, in, in, ter- in terms of the political environment, making making that kind of integration a little more pro- yeah, difficult. Yeah, like there's once you start focusing on nationalism, like what 
is important nationalism, like how your country is different than everyone else, like the things that bind us. And that paper talks a lot about how in order for there to be a true like economic and political union, there has to be homogeneity between countries. So once you start thinking you're different and you're special because you're different, like then you get a lot of heterogeneity, um, which kind of makes things fall apart, right? If you think you're so different, then you don't want to be with all these other people. And this actually, um, you know, gets us to two different issues. Um, you didn't, you, you know, when I read this paper, I didn't think that reading about trade in Asia would get me to this point. But not only uh, is this a definitely an issue of nationalism, it's also an issue of experts because organizations like ASEAN and the European Union are are run completely by technocrats and experts. And the backlash against them may not only come from nationalist roots; there definitely are nationalists. But I think a lot of people are hopping onto the nationalist uh, bandwagon because these institutions have not helped them. You know, the European Union has these like super intense regulations about like how many feathers should be in your pillow. That was one of the arguments used during the Brexit debate. You know, why do we want these excessive regulations from experts when we can make our own damn pillows? So a lot of these papers are actually kind of more integrated than we thought. You know, we can even move on now to the right-wing populism one, because it's very relevant to this discussion. Yeah, to, cl to close out the ASEAN paper, and th thanks, Jessica, um, I guess that one interesting point is that it's a – you said the author talks about, you know, inevitably globalist integration is, takes a back seat to the actual welfare of citizens within a country. Um, but sometimes there's a difference between what's good for people and what people believe is good for people. Um, and about a month ago, we talked to Grover Norquist, um, and one of the one of, one of the key quotes that he had um, that keeps resonating with me is that um, politicians within their own countries during elections blame uh, immigrants, blame refugees in other countries because they can't vote against them. Um, and so definitely seems like uh, this rise of this rise of nativism, um, whether or not the pragmatism shakes out in the positive or the negative, people certainly are beginning to believe that globalist integration is not to their benefit. Right. And I think that um, he talks about that in the paper as well. Um, I think his and, and I'm not I don't think it, it necessarily narrows down on specific points of how to how to increase welfare in a country, but his point being that it shouldn't be whether one type of regional organization is the model type that all countries should follow, but rather that whatever type they choose, whatever type that ends up working for them, that that type should increase the welfare of the citizens of that country. It's a big statement, and you know, it's uh, I think there's a lot that would need to be done to get from A to B, um, but I think that was the argument in the end. Makes sense. Yeah. All right, Austin, you want to talk? You want to talk about right right wing populism? Yeah, I. Um, it's basically what's kept me going in terms of. <laughs> that, that sounds weird. I was gonna say, do you want to clarify? So you mean to say that right wing populism is the thing that like sustains you in your life right now? Um, hating it. Um, mostly. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> I am fueled by hatred. No, that's oh not what I meant. What I meant was, oh my. It, uh, when I think of disruption, I think of the potential of disruption as a topic. Uh, it's what people want to hear about right-wing populism because it's what's affecting the world right now more than anything else. By all means, then, give the people what they want. So we We're have done. a paper on how um, ICTs, you know, um, uh, technology, technological progress has helped right-wing populism. And, uh, you know, I don't want to obviously reveal too much about what's in the paper, but... The, es the essence of it is that better communication and uh, you know letting people talk to each other has instead of making everyone understand each other more has allowed each other allowed people to sort of uh, work it within their own communities and discuss things with each other that they thought were previously taboo hmm. or render them not taboo and that has allowed this movement to seemingly come out of nowhere you know two years ago, we were not talking about right-wing populism. Trump looked like, you know... The guy from The Apprentice. 
Like, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yes. And all the and all the people on the so-called alt right were relegated to um, parts of the internet we do not want to talk about. And Agreed. Now they're in power. So it, that's that's what I mean when I say it's the same thing as a topic because it's just so interesting the way that it has achieved this sort of political ascendancy so quickly. Sure. So, so so two things is this phenomenon that you're talking about of um, bringing these uh, more politically previously politically marginal groups together is this sort of the same thing as some social science research that shows that as uh, broadband internet saturates into communities we actually see political polarization rise a little bit in those same communities yes that that's exactly it uh, and this is sort of the extreme example where usually it just you know you unfriend your grandmother from facebook because she said <laughs> too many good awesome. things about I can't, <laughs> I can't believe you unfriended kathy's grandmother on facebook <laughs> <laughs> she, she's hateful My i'm sorry grandmother is really upset. <laughs> did you vote for law and justice party i'm just kidding um, we don't need to talk. We don't need to talk about Kathy, Kathy's grandmother's politics on this podcast. We really Her Polish politics, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it's it's not just that. It's, it's the extreme version of that, where people who felt completely disenfranchised from society were looking for a reason why, and were told by what are essentially white nationalists that you know this is the reason why, and the solution is to join this political movement that goes against everything that's been going on in the world in the last 20 years, you know, globalization, um, integration of different peoples and uh, more cultural understanding. But I, but I guess, I guess the second thing is that the narrative this demystifies is that we believe that these uh, more politically extreme groups just arose suddenly from nowhere. When in fact, it sounds like what you're describing is that there was this gradual accretion where first in certain corners of the internet they began to gather, um, and now the, and gra and gradually grew, and now the, and now they're more part of a uh, more of a mainstream conversation perhaps. Um, so maybe it's maybe it's a little bit less of what we've perceived as just from from nowhere. Well, I guess I'm getting a little bit personal here. I've been on the internet for a long time, <laughs> and I've been to parts of those parts of the internet, and this is not a scientific term, but I've heard it, you know, discussed a lot in in political circles on the internet, and it's called irony decay, hmm. where what was ten years ago just ironic jokes about like the Jews suddenly became you know, putting a Star of David next to Hillary Clinton's face when discussing her, you know, supposed corruption. It, you know, and it takes place over a long enough time that people don't notice their, you know, their transition from irony and humor to actual anti-Semitic, anti-Muslim, anti-women beliefs. So it did take a long time uh, to develop, but once it developed, and once it found a, um, candidates to sort of uh, latch on to, like Donald Trump, it became this huge thing with figures, you know, near or in the White House, like Steve Bannon. Hmm. So, I guess, were you surprised by this? But, or, I mean, you haven't, you haven't, give, you haven't given away, appropriately haven't given away the uh, end of the paper, but were you surprised by where, where this paper takes this conversation, this narrative? Yeah, no, I, 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 I was. I mean, you know, you always suspect uh, a few outcomes, but when you actually see it happening, uh, you, you are surprised. You could also say that about the election. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I'm not going to reveal anything about it. I don't want to discuss it without revealing it. Go read it. Uh, but it really does sum up, I think, how technology sort of acted as a, a facilitator in terms of all of these people finding their way toward, you know, to, uh, towards working together to form a movement like this. Yeah, and now that now that you talk about it like that, I do see the linkage to the uh, ACN article that Jessica was just talking about. If nothing else, then all this I brimming ideology that we were full of in the uh, late '90s and early 2000s of how the internet is this utopia for free information and the EU is uh, this globalist exchange of free ideas and knowledge and people and capital. Um, now and now those things are being used for other purposes, as as we're finding out. Yeah, I wonder if Donald Trump would have been president if uh, there were more internet moderators on certain forums. <laughs> That's not a real research question. I'm just joking. Hi, Kathy. Hello. Thanks, Austin. Um, all right. So three papers down, two to go. to go. 
So which so which two papers uh, are you gonna walk us through right now? There's only two left, so you said both. Oh. Yeah. It's okay. I yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, <laughs> the papers we have left are. Um, the new face of small business, um, which looks at the role of Latino entrepreneurs, and then a paper about the effects of Uber um, and its impact on um, basically metropolitan labor markets. So how the movement, the encroachment, as you say, of Uber um, and Lyft, I think. Um, Ride sharing generally. Ride sharing yeah. in general, yes. I think Uber has been the main one for a long time until recent events in Uber's business um, have maybe propelled Lyft to a higher status. Given, I'm not sure. Given Lyft a Lyft? Maybe. Um, <laughs> Everybody cringed. <laughs> Everyone. Yeah. yeah. Um, so basically this paper looks at the impact of Uber coming to town um, on whether, I'm just going to the employment of taxi drivers. Yeah, and what's the what's the usual narrative there in case people can't draw connect the dots themselves? Um, basically, oh. that the presence of Uber, Lyft, and other ride sharing um, platforms means that taxi drivers won't have jobs anymore. That makes and and based just on the common wisdom, that makes sense. Right? Yeah, there's only so many people that need rides, right? right. Like that's the idea. Um, however, I guess I can. Should I spoil the surprise? What did this? Should I tell them what the paper hmm. found? Give us a hint. I don't know if you can really. I don't know. Get, I can't because we you... just like said what we think. So yeah. it's Either yes or no. Yeah. Right? No, I, th- I think. Uh, yeah, I think. I think. I think. <laughs> Everything in statistical research is. <laughs> more Spoiler. Stu- more stuff. More study necessary. <laughs> Basically. Um, no, I think I think that's fine. Uh, let's not let's not give give that away. But I I do have uh, one question, which is that Uber is such a recent. Relatively recent phenomenon. It's been around for a few years now. Ride sharing has been around for a few years at this point. Um, how did our author approach such a recent topic, like um, in terms in terms of the analysis? Yeah. So that is a great question, and I'm trying to remember right now how exactly she did it. Yeah. Some of us are focusing on our own theses, Justin. My apologies for that. Don't <laughs> us. So, so. Uh, um, but she used um, data from the um, current population survey. Yeah, division of um, census. Yes. Um, and then where else did she get the rest of her data from? Um, I'm Is trying to remember. Anything surprising in the findings because I think that um, I feel like there's been a lot of articles written, a lot of stories uh, all over the world of people protesting against Uber, um, and I think there were specific incidents in Paris and in Mexico. Um, so, in that article, was there anything? It did just kind of further emphasize that point, or did it kind of also take a step back and look at it from another lens? Yeah, so it was actually written last year before all of these, all the hubalabaloo um, <laughs> with Uber and um, their stance on a lot of things came to light, I think. Um, but because it is, it was written as a thesis. Um, for the McCord School, they based on just how they do these um, and our guidelines, there's very limited like um, implications that are drawn to the outside world just because of the nature of this type of statistical research. So I'm sorry. It seems like then that whoever she wrote this, if she predicted the outcome in some sense, then given what's happened. Um. I think I think the finding might actually cut against certain not not the most recent beliefs or the, not the not the most recent uh, controversy that's come out about Uber, but in terms of the economic consequences and the yeah. labor market consequences, mm-hmm. I think that the finding uh, the main finding of this paper might actually surprise some people and cut against a little bit of the mm. common wisdom. Yeah. I would agree with Justin. <laughs> um, okay, what about so what about our last paper in terms of uh, Latino entrepreneurs? Yeah, so this one is 
um, more of a look at how Latino entrepreneurs are really important in the face of small business. So um, obviously small businesses are an important part of the US economy. They employ a lot of people. They like most new businesses that are started are small. Um, everything that's huge that has usually been around for a while other than um, large businesses in Silicon Valley. Mm. But um, the author really talks about how in order to revitalize small business growth, um, you really need to look to towards Latino entrepreneurs since Latinos are really a growing sector of the US population. And as immigration has stalled, essentially, um, like the Latinos that, have, that are here have been here for years um, and they're really, they're more ready, I would say, perhaps, to make their mark in the small business world. Um, and the author goes through some challenges that not only all small business owners face, but Latinos in particular, and gives some really good policy recommendations for what Congress can do um, to help Latinos specifically, but I think all people in general, um, become more successful small business owners. And it has a lot to do with like credit and capital, access to capital, um, just because demographically uh, Latinos have less access to capital. You know, they don't have that rich uncle somewhere that'll give you your seed money. Um, and just their businesses are smaller. They don't have maybe as much education, like they're not getting their MBAs. Um, so it just offers a lot of good ideas, I think. Unclear if they'll go through in the current Congress, but. But, it, but it's interesting because this is actually a theme that has now spanned two spring editions, where a year ago we had an article on uh, millennial entrepreneurship yeah. and how entrepreneurial rates and uh, within millennials and the rate at which millennials were starting their own new small businesses were way down from previous generations. And um, a lot of that could be explained by uh, rising educational requirements and also the debt that comes with that. But it's really interesting, uh, this paper exploring a specific subset of that same population group yeah. because um, the Latino population tends to be younger than the, uh, than the population average mm -hmm. within the United States. Um, and so it's interesting where this paper sort of unintentionally presents a solution to the problem that last year's paper was describing. Yeah, perhaps, you know, there is this subpopulation that we could definitely focus on. And as we were talking, you know, all that I could think of was the Hamilton Lin-Manuel Miranda lyric, you know, immigrants, we get the job done. <laughs> so as someone who was born in another country, I have to agree. Um, and yeah, and, and, I, and I also appreciate this paper because within just public discourse, the narrative right now, as we were just talking about, about immigrants and generally people from other countries has been overwhelmingly negative, yeah. particularly from our, the current the current presidential administration. So it's nice to see uh, a the data dissected a little bit more rigorously, academically, granularly, and we come away with more of a positive conclusion. No, definitely. The question is how much the conclusion uh, will matter if uh, Trump actually goes through with all of his promises. The, the Latino community has, uh, you know, there's a lot of, they have a lot of potential, but the, what Trump's doing may uh, disrupt them. And I'm not using that word to be like funny, I'm actually serious. It's a, you know, a lot of things have been happening already. ICE has been ramping up deportations. Immigration officials are coming up with new rules, uh, like separating mothers from children when they come into the country. Uh, you know, building more um, immigration detention centers in preparation for something larger. It, the, the, it, just like with last year's paper about millennials and small businesses, what we're seeing here is a group with a lot of potential to make this country great again, um, being marginalized and uh, not being allowed to actually fulfill that potential. And that's unfortunate. It is, absolutely. And I, and I think the, the main thing that we come away from all these papers is that they are timely and they all they are all have a piece of a much broader conversation that they're, they're sort of uh, within the locus of. In any case, um, so, th so those are the articles that readers can look forward to pouring over obsessively <laughs> in, one, in one week's time, one week from today, when we're, we're recording this right now on uh, Thursday, March 23rd. Um, but 
So right now we would normally turn to our patented segment, So That Happened. But frequent listeners of the show may know that we retired So That Happened at the end of 2016 um, because we decided, or Rebecca Sinderbrun of The Washington Post decided that 2016 was the year of So That Happened. So we, we, needed, we needed to let that go. So instead, uh, we're, going to talk, uh, we're going to turn to our newly named segment, Disruptive Behavior, where we're going to tell you about that one piece of disruption news from the beginning of when we started thinking of the current spring edition to right now that we, I, was our favorite or we just haven't been able to get out of our heads. So, Austin, would you like to start us off? Um, well, it's not something I particularly like, but I think the single most disruptive piece of news out of all of last year was the um, Comey's intervention into the 2016 election. Uh, the consequences of that are very far-reaching, and they're sort of why we're sitting here talking about a lot of what Trump's doing, I think. So that, that was my that was my his disruptive behavior, in a way. Um, you know, I can't really get around the whole Trump thing. I'd love to think about other news, but he's just kind of there, there in my news? head. Like, is there other news other than Trump? I feel like... Brexit happened? Everything is so... Oh, Brexit was, Brexit was so long ago. I mean, that right? Was... And, 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 and yet, yeah. and yet we've, we first had the conversation and came up with the tagline of disruption just two weeks before Brexit happened. Just to give listeners an idea of how different the world was then. But yeah, I, uh, fair fair point, Austin. I think that Comey is one of the more influential moments of the campaign that largely gets forgotten about. Yeah, and uh, what one one reason why I'm going to get through this quickly. I'm sorry. One reason why this is why what he did was so disruptive, much more disruptive than if Trump won by other means, was that there's a whole new narrative out of the election about how his victory means, you know a victory for right-wing populism, a victory for, you know, anti-globalists, or it means that America, you know, pushed back against the elites, or that Hillary Clinton made this huge mistake by not visiting Wisconsin, a blue state, for some large amount of time, like 1984, right? Uh, it, there's this narrative that's occurring in all with all the political talking heads, even the ones I like, about Trump's victory meaning this, you know, this, uh, this narrative. And the truth is that there are lots of little things that influenced the election and Trump won just with 8,000 votes across three states. And we have, what we have to do here at GPPR and as, as experts in general is make sure to dispel narratives whenever they show up, just like, uh, you know, the narratives we discussed of Uber and with, with trade and all the other papers. Fair point. Jessica. So going beyond the U.S., even though that was a very, very disruptive thing that happened at the end of the year. There are other countries. There are other things that have been happening. Um, And on a more positive note, I have been really impressed over the past year um, in general, reading through all the technologies um, that have been created from more complex ones to simpler innovations that have really improved the lives of people in developing countries. Um, so there's one uh, company called Sanergy in Kenya, and they're doing a lot with transforming waste into renewable energy, which is a pretty cool concept. So they actually have um, entrepreneurs who buy these. They're called Fresh Life Toilets, um, and you can buy them. And um, with the waste that's produced, it actually powers um, cooking stoves. And the cooking stoves are actually located above the toilets. Um, and they're kind of like community stoves that people um, can utilize. And they've become a bit like gathering centers. There's like TVs and stuff like that. Um, so it's kind of a neat use of um, a neat way for entrepreneurs to get involved, as well as utilizing waste that will already have been there. Hmm. Um, and then just today, I read something about. Um, uh, vaccine uh, for the rotavirus um, that can be freeze-dried and then um, kids can eat it like a powder so it doesn't go through all the hassle of transportation which is often an issue in countries with bad infrastructure Um, so stories like these are signs that you know despite everything else happening in this world there are bright spots 
or disrupting disease and disrupting other bad things. Yes. Uh, the positive disruption. <laughs> I haven't thought of that in a long time. <laughs> Jessica's here to balance it out. Thank yeah. you. Yes. Kathy? Yeah, so I've been thinking about this as long as Austin and Jessica have been talking about this particular topic. <laughs> and um, so I think what's interesting for me, so I mostly focus my reading, writing, and thinking on social policy, particularly policies that affect the poor, um, poverty, and things like that. And little, little stuff. I know. The, the basics. A few, few programs. The basics. Um, and it was interesting time last year um, under the previous administration in terms of, this is one program, food stamps, you guys may have heard of it. Um, <laughs> And they were doing some really interesting stuff, you know, putting out pilots um, to allow, finally, um, people to buy, use their SNAP benefits to buy food online, so like do things like Instacart and just have groceries delivered, which could be um, a big deal for homebound seniors or anyone else. But I guess, like, to me, like, there was these, the last administration had ideas and they were disrupting what maybe poverty policy was supposed to be and all these programs, but now Sonny Perdue, the new USDA secretary, hasn't even had his confirmation hearing. So I think what I think about is like the stalling, um, how there was innovation and people were looking at things, you know, um, trying out new stuff. There were congressional hearings about it, you know, all these exciting things, but no one cares about the USDA anymore. Um, I mean, not that anyone has ever cared, <laughs> but I think that to me is something disappointing. You know, we talk about disruption and we assume that innovation will continue in all these programs that will keep moving to things that work better, help more people, but our current administration has very specific policy ideas and very, like, narrow-minded focus, um, so much so that I hope that all these good things that were happening and all these other areas don't like go withering by the wayside because there hasn't been a secretary for three months. Yes. Um, so yeah, I'm sorry that I made the, was a Debbie Downer. It's, and like, <laughs> this podcast is a sine wave right now. Basically, uh, basically, but I think there, there is positivity to be had, you know, we could, there is more innovation, you know, more disruption, and hopefully it'll be, continue to be positive and not an end of the world type of thing. Yes. Granted, it is just a proposal, but for our readers, although we have a pretty wonky audience, but for our readers who have not yet reviewed the administration's budget proposal, USDA, not the top priority, unsurprisingly. <laughs> However, Even they though, are cutting the McGovern Dole Food for Education program that the USDA runs. And so we are, that's the proposal. So gotcha. Yeah, Meals happens. on Wheels. Yeah. Um, as some people may have heard. <laughs> that, but I think like um, the problem is that the USDA doesn't always, it's not just nutrition programs, like they do a lot for rural communities. Mm -hmm. and. Um, just thinking about who voted for the administration, it was a lot of people in rural communities. So um, it's unfortunate that the administration is maybe turning its back in a way on its own people. Oh, I When I think about it that way. Oh, unintended consequences. Uh, yeah. Whew! Thank you, Kathy. Kevin, can you, can you give us a boost again? Yeah, the off-silent Kevin Barslow. Um, if not positivity, at least a little frivolity. Um, Love it. So ESPN's lineup is being disrupted by eSports. Yeah, so for the first time ever, the network has started to air uh, Dota 2 tournaments, League of Legends, Hearthstone, things like that. So your Monday night football may become Monday night MOBAs. So to so you just used a lot of acronyms all at once. But, <laughs> Sorry. But yeah, to, what is E? So, yeah, so, so, so talk, talk to Kathy as though she's one of our listeners not familiar with eSports. So eSports, <laughs> electronic sports, video games, basically. Just okay. competitive video gaming. They, some people make a lot of money playing. Yeah, really? That's um, a thing? Oh, yeah, the prize so pool for, for the biggest uh, Dota tournament, which is just one of the video games, uh, is often in like the millions or tens of millions. Um, to answer Austin's question, I'm not sure if they have Overwatch yet, but 
I know the pro league is starting up soon. So. so basically what you're telling me is that I should have tried harder to learn video games when I lived at home with my brother. Yes, exactly. Okay. Exactly. It's a great way to make a living. Um, <laughs> any of our younger listeners, you know, don't Tell go your to parents. school. Yeah, don't focus on, you know, school or sports. Video games. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, when your brother would beat you and you would say, whatever, it's just a game. Now the answer is, is it though? Yeah. <laughs> it's the game. I was pretty good at Mario Kart though. Touche. Okay. Oof. Which, uh, which, uh, which 60, 64? Which, which do you remember? I think remember? 64, and then I think awesome. we also had it for the GameCube. Ah, but then almost. I got too old, and I moved. Yeah. Or did you? In any in any case, any 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 reason why why is it is it just their growing popularity? Is it that uh sport like um traditional sports t- television licensing prices are going up or? Um, I think it's more demand-driven than anything else. Um, you look at popular streaming sites, Twitch, is the, Twitch TV is the most popular, yeah. and there's millions and millions of viewers, so ESPN is trying to capitalize on that uh, user base and perhaps expand it. I mean, um, one of the things they do, which is good, I think, for video games in general, is they make these very esoteric games a lot more accessible with the commentators. That is nice. That is very cool. Do you think it'll be successful? Uh, so I don't think it has the best ratings so far, um, but I think if they work at it and kind of figure out the best way to market it, it definitely could be. America's learning to find a love in its heart for soccer, the beautiful game. Esports, there's hope. Absolutely. (laughs) Sorry, that that was a very nationalistic thing of me to say, but I guess suitable for the discussion of this podcast. My turn. So, uh, my, yeah, uh, more, more, more least than last. Um, but so I, I've talked about it a little bit throughout the year, which is that, which is polls. Um, the public's relationship with polls in the wake of the election, where lots of people, lots of experts, politicos, statisticians, uh, going into the election thought that Hillary Clinton was the favorite candidate and she lost the election to Donald Trump. And in the wake of that, um, the public's reaction to polls and statistical models in general has been mostly negative, saying that you can't trust them anymore or the polls were wrong. And that's not true um, because the polls were actually – so so here so here's what we know. The polls showed Hillary Clinton winning – the national national popular vote by about four percentage points, margin of error about two, and she ended up winning by about two and a half percentage points, uh, the national popular vote. So those were correct. The polls on the state level, we found out, were systematically biased in the Midwest, which is where Trump overperformed certain expectations. But there was a much higher degree of uncertainty in the polls in the states because of historically high numbers of voters registering as undecided or answering polls as undecided or uh, another candidate compared to previous elections. Something like uh, thir- something like uh, nearly, nearly a third of, uh, of respondents compared to usually something in the teens. Um, and so uh, modelers, for instance, like at the New York Times Upshot, if you go and you just drop all that data uh, that those gray bars of undecided, then yeah, it looks like Hillary Clinton is running away with the election, and that's why the upshot at some at certain points had her as the 97% favorite in the election, where clearly that was a little bit of an exaggeration. Um, but if you factor in that uncertainty and you're willing to say like, hey, I don't know exactly what this outcome is going to be, then the race looks a little bit tighter. And what we actually found from exit polls is that a lot of those undecided voters actually made up their minds the 24 hours before November 8th, before the election, which means that there's no way that a pollster or a series of polls could have accurately captured that result um, ex ante. Um, but so so the poll the polls were not wrong. The way that we interpreted them was, and the way that we interpret very large or very small probabilities wasn't quite right. And this has had really strange, in my opinion, bleedover effects. Where the the most common or the mo- the most common example I like to use is the Super Bowl, where the Patriots were getting run off the field by the Atlanta Falcons 
all the way into all the way until halfway through the third quarter and probability models had the Falcons as 97% favorites to win the game and lo and behold the Patriots came back and they won the game and everybody said there you go again the polls were wrong you can't trust the numbers but that's not true just because something is unlikely to happen doesn't mean it's impossible and just because something unlikely actually happens doesn't mean that it was any less unlikely to begin with where if I told you a team is up by 20 some odd points with a quarter and a half left to go in the Super Bowl, who do you think is going to win, team A or team B? And then if I asked you to repeat that, if I repeated this game with you 100 times, how many times do you think that outcome is going to happen? You'd probably tell me 97 out of 100. Which is strange because we, we sort of just throw up our hands with March Madness, which is going on right now. And it's like, eh, I don't know, you know, some team might be the favorite, but if they don't win, then, you know, it's not like I was wrong per se. It's just really hard to predict or they didn't have a very good probability to win anyway. So this is an example of narrative overriding our relationship with the numbers. So it's not that the numbers were wrong ex ante. It's the way that we are interpreting them. Um, so I guess this is my public service announcement, which is to say that math is not broken. Probability <laughs> is not broken. Just our, our relationship to wanting to give probability, no pun intended, the benefit of the doubt um, has definitely been disrupted and to an extent damaged by this most recent election. I just wanted to add in those last 24 hours, Comey was all over the news. Uh, so that was probably why Donald Trump won. And also, it goes back to the experts thing. It's it's not it's it's definitely with polls, but I think that just anything involving experts, people don't trust them anymore. I mean, that was one of the narratives during the Brexit campaign. Uh, Nigel Farage and all those other people were saying, "Oh, the experts say that Brexit will be terrible for the UK. Don't listen to them." And Brexit is pretty bad for the UK. So even when the experts are right. A good enough campaign by these right-wing people will, you know, and left-wing people too, unfortunately, will, uh, you know, disrupt trust between experts and the people that we're trying to help. And we need to figure out a way to mend that trust. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Um, and I and I think and I think in closing, I think there is there's a lot of work to be done in terms of re-examining certain fundamental narratives within American politics that the stats just don't bear out. For instance, presidential mandates. Donald Trump was elected with a minority share of the popular vote, um, and the same thing would go if Hillary Clinton had squeaked into a win, where she would have won by just a couple percentage points. So let's be careful when we want to draw big sweeping conclusions because the narrative is a little bit easier to internalize than the actual numbers uh, that underlie it. Whew, that was fun. Um, Austin, last, last thing. Why don't you give the listeners a little preview in terms of what's coming up um, in the next seven days all the way up until spring launch? Um. The spring launch is what's coming up in seven days, right? <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Do, do we have anything else lined up before then? Um, no, we've just got no, we just uh, got some. Got like, don't be... make me do more work. <laughs> sorry, I'm a I'm a cruel, cruel editor in chief. I'm like going from this to another GPPR meeting. It's like. <laughs> I'm swamped and you're like, what other content do we have? Um, no, but but we but you we did literally uh, minutes before we got on this podcast release release your uh, last or your most recent disrupting your month piece. True. It's uh, probably gonna be the last one unless I uh, you know find the energy post thesis <laughs> to spit something out uh, concluding our year. Uh, and this uh, disrupting your month is a little bit shorter and a little bit different from the other ones. instead of discussing disruptive news, I am discussing how we are um, disrupting your day on March 30th, uh, because you will be reading the Spring Edition, and you will also be going to, hopefully, our Spring event, which will be later that day on March 30th at 4 o'clock at the Alumni House at Georgetown. Beautiful um, event. The best. The biggest event. Alcohol and food, right? The best people. Yes. And I'll free. Be there, so. <laughs> the most alcohol, the most yes. food. <laughs> the best Historic numbers of food and alcohol. <laughs> oh, definitely. Uh, it'll be it'll be the greatest event that America has ever seen. 
If you want to uh, see the uh, the spring edition on March 30th, you can go to gpprspring.com. Sounds just like I said it, you know, that's, that's what it is. And uh, the event, you can go to gpprdisruption.eventbrite.com to learn more. When is this podcast being uh, published again? Uh, this is going to go up on, you're listening to this on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to be sure, because if this was going up on the 30th, that whole part was completely useless. No, uh, but but yeah, uh, we'll, be, we'll be teasing some of the content uh, in graphical form throughout the week. We've got a great panel lined up in just one week's time for the launch event. Uh, yeah, and we're really looking forward to introducing you to the Spring Edition and the Spring Edition to the world. So, on that note, thank you, Kevin. Thank you. Thank you, Austin. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. No, thank you, Jessica. Too kind, but thank (laughs) you. And thank you, Jessica. Thanks. This has been the all-disruption-themed View from the Hilltop, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of the GPPR Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more exciting content from the Georgetown Public Policy Review, check out our website, gppreview.com, our Twitter, at gppolicyreview, and our Facebook, gppreview. For more content from the podcast, make sure to follow us on iTunes at GPPR and on SoundCloud, GPPReview.